Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. In this episode, I talked with Celeste McMickle, who is a director for the TRUE program at the U.S. Green Building Council. Before we get into it, I wanted to mention a couple of upcoming events. First, the Nessie Building Energy Conference in Boston. Nessie is the Northeast Sustainable Energy Association, and I've been involved with them for over 20 years. I'm looking forward to the conference. March 23rd and 24th, 2020, at the Western Boston Waterfront. Uh, my colleague Nicole Cece and I are doing a session titled To Electrify or Not to Electrify, where we talk about priorities and practicality of electrifying buildings. Check that out if you're going to be in Boston, or if you can be in Boston, March 23rd and 24th. N-E-S-E-A dot org slash B-E-2-0. Right after our session in Boston, Nicole is jumping on a plane and heading to Atlanta to the ACEEE Hot Water Forum. ACEEE, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. Their Hot Water Forum is in Atlanta this year, March 23rd to 25th. Uh, And this is all about water heating. I've been to this also, and it's a great event. New water heating equipment, multifamily hot water systems, smart plumbing design, policies and programs, and really lots more related to water heating. In lots of buildings, such as many multifamily buildings, hot water is the single biggest thermal load. So figuring out, figuring out how to do that in a practical, sustainable, and cost-effective way isn't always straightforward. Uh, so check that out if you can. ACEEE.org. That's A-C-E-E-E.org. So uh, this episode, again, I talked with Celeste McMickle about waste reduction and the TRUE program. I learned about TRUE, it really wasn't all that long ago. I've been... I've been somewhat mindful about waste and waste reduction, but I didn't really know much about getting to zero waste, uh, and I learned a lot in this conversation. In the first half, Celeste talks a little bit about her background and about the TRUE program itself, Uh, and then in the second half, we talk more about examples, how facilities are getting to zero, uh, both doing the low-hanging fruit, the straightforward stuff, and some clever and innovative strategies. We started with Celeste talking about how she got interested in waste. Cool. So, uh, waste. I mean, Celeste, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in waste, waste reduction? Sure, absolutely. Um, So, yes, my name is Celeste McMickle, and I am an architect, uh, converted over to waste diversion uh, enthusiast. And I got interested in waste, I think, um, in part due to the green building consulting that I did professionally for a number of years, where consistently I was seeing construction waste diversion being a big issue and source of confusion um, in the building industry. And even when other green building standards were understood and well implemented, consistently I was seeing uh, the construction waste issue being uh, problematic. So 
that started to be interesting to me. And then simultaneously, um, more on a personal level, I'm a very avid gardener. And so composting is obviously something that is often a gardener's best friend. And so I was getting more interested in composting and finding out more about how composting is this wonderful thing that turns what is often seen as a problem, uh, i.e. trash, into this resource, which is a very nutrient-rich uh, supplement that can be added to soil to really help boost your garden's performance. So those two things concurrently were kind of going on. I was seeing this issue in my professional work, and then uh, simultaneously I was learning about composting and, and waste diversion. And I started to just get more interested in what was happening within the waste and recycling world. And I also think living in New York City, um, trash is just something that is a part of your everyday life. You see it all the time. You see it on the sidewalk. You see it on the ground. You see litter. You see piles of garbage. It's kind of a daily part of life. And I think previously it had been one of those things that I had looked at and thought, oh, what a shame that there's trash everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if someone would do something about it? And then that conversation kind of evolved into, man, this is really a problem. I should do something about it. And it really seemed to me like this next issue of sustainability that no one, no one had really touched yet. Um, you know, people were talking about green building and energy efficiency and Lots of issues related to how we can improve our built environment and surroundings, but I just didn't really see um, the public or the you know private sector really talking about trash as much. And so um, I started to get more involved and learn about what was going on. And I actually found out that there were a lot of great resources and organizations and opportunities um, to work within the waste and plastic diversion realm. And I started pursuing those and just getting more excited about what the possibilities were. Yeah, that, that's so is really multiple angles that you got hooked into mm-hmm. this topic. When LEAD first got started, I was encouraged to see construction waste there because that is something that, I, I mean, I also hadn't paid a lot of attention to it and I, I certainly wasn't alone. A lot right. of builders and developers didn't pay much attention to it. And... I, Construction waste is really, actually when I heard about, the first time I heard about True, which is a program uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail now, the waste, (laughs) zero waste, zero waste program, I I was thinking that it was construction waste, Mm -hmm. you know, when I first heard about it, but it's not, it's, well, it's not, or it's not only construction waste, it's, it's, and you know, maybe can you talk a little bit about what, True is, how it got started, and how you got involved? Yes, absolutely. So True is a zero-waste certification program. It stands for Total Resource Use and Efficiency, and it is part of the USGBC and GBCI suite of programs. So similar to the way that LEED is a green building certification that is maintained by the GBCI, uh, True is a zero-waste certification program that is maintained by GBCI. And I am a director for True Zero Waste for the Northeast and Midwest regions. What we do with our True projects is that we help facilities ensure that their operations meet a set of zero waste certification standards. So 
what that kind of means in the context of understanding how that works within the building is you might have a LEED certified building that then their operations would be true certified. So we're really working with the facilities themselves um, to make sure that their internal operations are conducted with zero waste in mind. And we have a set of metrics that we've developed to help um, to help our clients and, and their facilities achieve those standards. In, in line with um, the construction construction and demolition waste, we actually do have a construction waste demolition pilot that we're working on that we have had um, one project pursue. They have not yet certified, um, but that is actually the goal is to have more projects that are able to pursue true for zero waste, um, construction waste and demolition. So zero waste is to me, seems a little intimidating. We're not sure. talking about half the waste or much <laughs> less waste, but but zero, truly zero. Right. Is that is that the end goal, or is or is a certification really based on truly zero waste? Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we are we are based in zero waste. That is the idea, and and what that really means is that we ask our projects to meet a minimum diversion number of, of 90%. So we actually uh. do allow for a 10% window, um, understanding that there are just some things that are going to be extremely challenging. And similar to the other um, lead design standards and criteria that have been developed, um, like under the materials section, if you install a particular product up to 90%, then you're able to claim the point, right? 90% is kind of viewed as getting, doing all the work you possibly can and, and allowing for there to be that, that one moment where, you know, you're, you're just not going to be able to, to work on that particular piece. So, so all our projects are required to meet a diversion standard of 90%. That is a prerequisite for certification, However, right. um, we do completely understand how intimidating that can be. But the good news is that our standard is developed based off of the Zero Waste International Alliance, uh, short ZWIA, um, definition of the highest and best use of resources, which is this great triangle diagram that I can also send to you in case you know it's helpful to include that. Um, but it basically... It basically identifies the best possible way to use resources, and that starts with the idea of reduction, reuse, um, and you know reappropriation, and then it moves down to other things like composting and recycling, and finally landfill at the bottom. But the key okay. takeaway here is that reduction and reuse are seen as the highest and best use for resources. So... What that means for our projects is that in a typical diversion calculation, you calculate what you're sending to recycling, what you're sending to landfill, and then that's your diversion number, right? You kind of only look at those two elements. What okay. we do is we consider that recycling is actually not the highest and best use of resources, and that the best thing a company can do is to make a more sustainable choice, such as something simple like switching from having single-use plasticware um, in, in a kitchen facility to having a reusable uh, silverware option or similar with like a single-use coffee cup versus providing actual um, washable reusable cups. So for our clients, we allow them to count the 
the items that they're making a reusable reduction choice in and calculate what the amount of resources that was previously devoted to that product would be and count that towards their diversion number. So they can count things like taking single-use plasticware out of the equation and switching over to, to a more sustainable alternative. So with those choices in mind, it actually helps companies get to a much better diversion number as long as they're making those choices that are in line with the zero waste hierarchy. So if you had a, you know, recycling diversion number previously of like 30%, which is a pretty common recycling rate, um, and, and, you know, that would mean that you were sending 70% to landfill. Um, If you go through our checklist and start making those reduction and reuse choices, Doing those things alone might boost your numbers up to, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent. And so I think projects often can get a lot closer than they realize um, just by making better choices in their operations. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. Just reducing up front. And, and it's obvious when you're talking about it, but I think very often, you know, zero waste means recycling. Right. I, I don't think the, the biggest and obvious steps are what comes to mind for many people. Right, exactly. And we talk about um, the choices that I just discussed as being more upstream choices versus downstream choices. A downstream um, choice is more about recycling and composting and landfilling, and the upstream choices are those reduction and reuse opportunities. And one of the reasons uh, that we also focus so heavily on the upstream is, you know, of course, because it's those are kind of the most sustainable choices that you can make, but also because those are things that companies have control over. A lot of times, um, a company isn't necessarily going to have control over the downstream choices that are available to them, depending on their region, uh, the type of um, you know, company that they might be, what products they may be facilitating or, you know, manufacturing. Um, because our recycling markets, which we can talk more about, have been especially challenging over the last couple of years. And so we really yeah. want to make sure that we're giving companies the opportunity to save as many resources as possible without having to rely 100% on what haulers may or may not be available, even if it's just a simple thing like they want to compost and there's no compost hauler available. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What, what, kind of, what kind of buildings do you get involved in? Is it a big gamut? Yeah, we have a pretty wide range of of different types of projects. Um, I think historically, a lot of our first clients have been manufacturing because I think those were a lot of the contacts and resources that um, we had available to us when we first started the program. Um, But we're actually still a pretty new program. We were acquired um, by the USGBC in 2016. And so it's really only been about like two and a half years um, of being able to really launch this program and move it forward. So although um, it started with a lot of manufacturing over the past couple of years, especially as being part of the USGBC, we've really seen a lot of growth in hospitality, in higher education, um, commercial and office buildings. Um, We've already uh, even had some um, opportunities to talk with uh, residential, uh, like property manager companies. And so there's really a wide range of different types of projects that are eligible to participate. And we would not say no to anyone. I think any type of building would be eligible to pursue true certification. Again, it's just all about um, making that commitment to zero waste 
And the exciting thing about zero waste is that it's something that everyone encounters, right? Like every person in the world deals with trash just in different ways. And so because of that, there's really no facility that would be off the table because it's something that literally every building um, encounters one way or another. Yeah. I, th- do, you get, do you personally get involved in all these different types of facilities? Because I think the, I mean, the challenges or the, or the waste reduction methods for a factory would be very different than an office, than a restaurant. It seems like there's a lot of, or maybe, there, maybe there's a lot of overlap, but just from somebody who doesn't know much about it. How, how are you personally involved in all these different types of facilities? And I guess, how do the strategies vary? Sure. No, that's a great question. Um, so first I'll maybe talk about the, the strategies. Um, as far as that's concerned, we use a tailored certification program that's kind of similar to LEED in that there are a number of different points, um, 81 in total, that projects can choose from for how they want to pursue certification. We also have tiered performance tiers, um, certified silver, gold, and platinum, you know, what everybody is familiar with with LEED, so we tried to make it simple. Um, but the range of points that are required are you, you need to meet at least 31 points to achieve certification, and then 81 points is the maximum number in the program. And we've really tried to leave a lot of options uh, within the, that point range to allow projects to make the choices that are going to be most appropriate for them. So we have a number of different credit categories that address different components of zero waste certification. Um, We have a section on closed loop. We have a section on recycling, a section on composting, a section on education, training, you name it. All the different elements that go into what a zero waste certification encapsulates, we've tried to address. And because of that, I think it gives um, projects and individual facilities the opportunity to pick and choose what is going to be most appropriate for for their unique situation. So the certification program is very tailorable. You just have to meet 90%. That's kind of the, we, we do have a number of different requirements, but achieving the 90% is kind of the most important one. Um, but whatever means you use to get there, you know, the certification program is there to help guide you through that process. Um so that's one piece. And then as far as the other question is, you know, kind of how do we get involved? So we do actually have a true as an assessor-based program, which means that we implement third-party verification for every project. So whatever the project may be, wherever it's located, we always are going to send an assessor on site to review the strategies um, at the project and do interviews and just make sure that everything that they intended to do is actually happening. Um, and what, you know, we're seeing as part of their certification performance is, is actually, you know, truly, truly happening on site. And it's not necessarily to, to, the idea isn't to catch someone doing the wrong thing. The idea is just to make sure that the um, integrity of the certification program is upheld and that different criteria are being understood and implemented correctly, right? Because, you know, obviously people make mistakes. So we do feel that the third-party assessor verification is a very important part of the program. Um, 
that is not going to be uh, any internal GBCI or USGBC staff that will be going out and doing the assessor visit. That's going to be a third party company that we um, that we have enlisted with to provide that service. Um, but we always do have a hands-on approach with every project. And then of course, uh, our staff is available to help those projects make their way through the program and address any issues that might come up, um, answer questions related to the rating system and whatever might, you know, be needed throughout the process. So you're, yeah, you're mostly involved in the mm, certification, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And do like, say, a widget factory is interested in reducing their waste. I mean, who, they have the checklist, they have the guidelines. Uh, if they need help uh, implementing some of these things or finding innovative ways to do it, it sounds like that's that would be a role for a, uh, someone else. Or sure. In they develop that expertise in house or. Sure, that's 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 great. Um, so one thing that I haven't gotten to talk about yet is the fact that we have a professional credential related to True Certification, and that is called okay. the True Advisor. Uh, the True Advisor is a credential very similar to the idea of a lead AP um, in that it is a training program that anyone can go through. Um, we have, you know, everyone from students to consultants to in-house sustainability coordinators for organizations. It's really available to anybody that's interested in zero waste. So what the True Advisor does is that it it has a online module that is available for any participants to sign up and go through this online training course. So you actually get a full deep dive, um, I would say approximately 12 hours of education related to zero waste practices. Of course, we do have a lot of information on there about true certification itself, but we also talk about um, general zero waste standards and concepts such as, um, of course, the zero waste hierarchy, waste audits, diversion calculations. It's really everything you could want to know about zero waste practices. And at the end of the online module program, there is an exam that you take, and if you pass, then you receive the credential. So it's a fantastic opportunity for anybody that's really interested in zero waste to be able to get that hands-on learning um, and then get, you know, kind of a cool credential at the end of it. Uh, how this works, I would say, for certification is that we really highly recommend that any project that is pursuing true certification have a true advisor in the mix. And, you know, I think that's very similar to the way that most projects are used to approaching lead certification. Of course, you can do it without a lead AP, but it just makes the whole process more challenging. So enlisting with a true advisor is going to make sure that there's someone that's knowledgeable about the program, that's knowledge about zero waste practices, and is going to help shepherd the project through that process. Sometimes our projects will choose to engage with a consultant who is a true advisor and, you know, who's a you know, zero waste expert consultant in the industry, and that's fantastic. But a lot of times we also see our projects, especially if it's a company that plans to certify a number of their facilities, they'll actually get um, one or maybe a couple of in-house true advisors certified so that those individuals can... Um, 
can you know help the process along the way. A good example of that would be um, one of our clients is Colgate Palmolive, and they have facilities all over the world. And one of the things that we've recommended for them is that they have someone credentialed at each facility because that's really just going to ensure that uh, the process goes well and that they're able to maintain that zero waste process um, once the certification is complete. That's another thing that I should mention real quick is that in order to receive certification, we need um, a base year of data showing what the company um, waste performance was before they implemented some of these true zero waste tactics. Um, and then, of course, we need the year of data showing that the project has achieved 90% diversion. And then every year moving forward, um, we need to see documentation showing that the project continues to meet 90%. So, you know, it doesn't have to be any new strategies necessarily. We just need to see that ongoing documentation submitted on an annual basis. Um, there's no charge cool. for that. We just consider that to be part of maintaining the certification of a project. But if we were to stop receiving that annual data, then we would go to the project team and say, hey, what's going on? Or have, or have you guys run into trouble? Or you're not maintaining your certification? And, you know, it could... It could be become an issue if if we just you know never heard from them again. We would we would take away the certification. Although, um, to my knowledge, we have never done that yet. Yeah, interesting. I, that was on my list of questions. But yeah, it's just the one and done kind of certification. But no, it's it, there's ongoing uh, tracking or verification. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very we good. we expect that this is that once a project is going to put in place their zero waste strategies to hit those diversion numbers, that they are making a choice for how they want their business and their operation to run. And that moving forward, they will continue to put in the, the work to, to maintain um, that effort and that standard within their operations. And I think most projects that, that I've encountered have been really happy about this because actually one of the cool things about zero waste programs is that they oftentimes help you save money um, because it's not necessarily about uh, making a big change to your building, right? Like swapping out an inefficient window for a fancy newer efficient window. It's actually about finding places within your operations where waste is happening. And anytime you have waste, there's going to be costs associated with it. So if you cut the waste in the physical sense of the actual material that's going to landfill, oftentimes that's going to help cut your savings, or I'm sorry, um, cut your costs as well. So I think they... I think a lot of times our projects see a lot of benefit in continuing the certification because they continue to reap the benefit of those cost savings. Okay. For, say, manufacturing, what's the kind of low-hanging fruit? What are there things that seem to be common among many different types? And, and also, I, I'd love to hear like some really innovative kind of uh, practices that you've seen that particular companies have found, just strategies that really work well for them. Sure. Uh, but, but first, I mean, yeah, are there some really commonalities on... Let's say manufacturing. Yeah, manufacturing, I think one of the common um, choices we see is pallet related. Um, a lot of uh. times pallets are pretty single use items, unfortunately, even though you know they're made out of wood, but they're, they're fairly flimsy and they break very easily. Um, and so they might have one or two lives in them, but oftentimes they're just thrown out. So we see that being pretty low hanging fruit for projects that either will convert to a more durable, uh, reusable pallet option, such as like a, um, 
more like plastic, but you know, it's often made from kind of like a composite material, but more, it's more like heavy duty and, and durable. So switching to uh, that from your traditional wood palette is a great option. Um, and then another innovative way that we've seen projects move out of the uh, single use palette option is to have kind of like a collection station where palettes are brought in and the damaged ones are actually repaired or sent back to a manufacturer, or they could be mulched, um, chopped up and then mulched and used in compost. So I think oftentimes palettes have great next life opportunities, um, be that in the reusing framework, be that in the composting framework, but really um, honing in on what you can do about your your um, pallet waste is, is a great opportunity for a lot of our manufacturing clients. Cool. And, and how about, yeah, some, have you seen some cool stories, some cool innovations? We've definitely seen a lot of cool innovations. Yeah, I think um, another one of our common types of projects are breweries. We've had a lot of breweries go through the program and um, breweries are great um, because obviously one of their huge byproducts is like the leftover hops and beer making material. And that is great for being composted on site, like for a um, on-site garden potentially, or, you know, to be sent to citywide composting. But it's a huge amount of heavy, wet material that has no business being in the landfill and it's a great opportunity to divert that um, to a to a just much more sustainable useful function and so I think a lot of times the opportunity to integrate either on-site composting or working with a local community to take that material is a great option for our projects that are breweries or might have other on-site um, you know food waste or material waste options um, the, another the breweries, um I'm sorry? Yeah, I was just going to say the breweries I'm familiar with. I know uh, animal feed for the spent grains uh -huh. is really, really common. Uh huh. Yep, that's uh, another one. Yep. And we actually have a credit within the rating system that um, that is for diverting those products to animal feed. So, um, so yeah, that's definitely and an opportunity. Related to that, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but. So if you had a brewery that already did divert most of its spent grains to animal feed, uh, they would have to get to 90% reduction from their status quo. Is that, is that correct? Well, what we would actually do in, in that case is we would allow them to backtrack and, and pick uh. a base year maybe prior to having implemented that as a standard, or we would allow them to use a um, more of like an industry standard for how that material would, would typically be processed as opposed to the way that they were handling it. Because we definitely want them to count that good effort that they're making. And that's obviously going to be a huge part of their achievement of getting to 90%. So we're going to work with them to figure out a way to either use an industry standard in place of having... Um, that you know that number available as a as a waste. Um, yeah, we'll we'll work with them on that. And a similar yeah. a similar situation is that we have a restaurant that we are working with in New York that was set up as a zero waste restaurant from the get go. And so all of their operations from day one have been with zero waste in mind, which is really phenomenal to begin with. But um, they wow. did, you know, run into a couple of challenges with our rating system because our program is more developed to help programs move from 
one way of operating to a more sustainable way of operating. And so we have had to work with them a little bit to figure out exactly how to count certain credits since they don't really have any tracking year related to waste because it's been zero this whole time. And we've been able to work with them on that and, and figure out that solution. But that's kind of a similar a similar example of how yeah. we would try and recognize um, a company's ongoing good efforts. Excellent. Cool. Cool. Mm-hmm. And I interrupted you about breweries. You said you were, you were going to go to another example. Hmm, what was I going to say? Maybe, yeah, I totally derailed you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I think I was also thinking of um, within the realm of manufacturing that there is some other interesting strategies that we've seen with like material coming in shrink wrap um, and other sort of like more like plastic film types of materials and just seeing them make, um, you know, either create relationships with, uh, with the, uh, who is shipping that product to begin with and create like take back programs or create a relationship with a company like TerraCycle to be able to then recycle that material. So I think it's, it's kind of, it's really a great process once a company starts going through our program because they see other opportunities where they can divert their waste. They might start by having already started a compost program on site, but they had never thought about the plastic film. And so I think once you've made one choice and then you start to see these other opportunities to um, convert your waste or reduce your waste, then it's just more likely to kind of become a little bit of like a a waterfall effect and generate excitement and interest really quickly in, in just eliminating your waste altogether. Cool. Yeah, fantastic. How how about in restaurants? You mentioned restaurants, and I would think that would be a lot. I mean, food waste is, I would think, a huge issue, the biggest issue in restaurants. Yeah, food waste is a huge issue, Um, and that's definitely an area that we're hoping to focus a little bit more on. I think the hospitality industry in general is a little bit of a newer industry for us to be partnering with, Mm, but there's so much work to be done in that realm, and I think a lot of projects that are getting really excited about the opportunity to work towards a certification to be able to showcase that they are actually are making the effort that they say they're, they're doing. Um, obviously like greenwashing um, can be a huge issue in the industry. And I think consumers more and more just really want to see um, actual results from, um, from the products, from the places that they shop and eat. And so I think that's somewhere that restaurants are starting to get on board with and understand the importance of, of waste and the importance of um, yeah, reducing it, composting their leftovers and things like that. So restaurants are kind of interesting because there's sort of a twofold approach um, with with restaurants in that you have back of house waste generated and front of house mm. waste generated, right? So you have mm-hmm. everything that's happening in the kitchen, um, which is, you know, going to be like cuttings from vegetables and, you know, other materials that are used to make the food. And then you have what the actual um, consumers, um, the guests and patrons are throwing away. And that can be a, a bit of a disconnect sometimes um, in part because it, it kind of depends on what this, what the restaurant is like. Is it a sit-down space where there are servers that are coming to take the plates and take them away? Or is it more a quick get-up-and-go type of restaurant where the patrons are responsible for bussing their own trays and tables? Um, mm. And I think anytime you're working with the public, there can be 
I will say can be, not necessarily always, but there can be a lot of confusion about where things go, right? Like, what do you recycle? What do you put in landfill? What do you put in the compost? And so I think that's a big, yeah. I would say always. I'm sure you've experienced I that, right? <laughs> I've, I've never seen, I mean, I've never seen in one of those restaurants, I'll go and try to sort my trash in, or not, not necessarily trash, mm-hmm. and I'll look at all the bins, and I always see anything and everything in whichever bin. Oh, yeah. It's, ugh, it's, it's so all over the place. It's all over the place. It's a huge issue. I think it's one of the most confusing public interfaces that we have actually is the recycling industry and the waste industry because Mm. I'll use New York City as an example Um, you know obviously it's a very diverse city people come here people come here to visit from all over the world and people come here to live from all over the world so not only are you are you working with a very diverse population of residents, but you're also working with a very diverse population of tourists and people come with different understandings, different cultures, different languages. Um, Some that come from very progressive places where you're able to just, you know, recycle everything and compost everything. And that's the norm. Um, Other individuals that might come from somewhere where that's not as much a common practice. And so they have no idea, you know, what the current, New York regulations are. And I think half the time, even hardcore New Yorkers don't necessarily know what those regulations are. So all this to say, I think restaurants can be really challenging, but I think one of the surefire ways to at least help that process is A, one option is to just make everything compostable. If it's like a to-go situation, um, you know, if, if it's like cups and plates and things like that, and it's just all compostable to throw away, then then that's going to take out the confusion um, to begin with. Um, or, you know, if it's if it's like clearly something is like reusable, like it's a ceramic plate or something like that, then somebody hopefully isn't going to try and throw that away. But the idea is that you reduce the number of choices that that individual has to make um, because they're just not going to take the time to figure it out. Um, and you can provide great signage. That's another, you know, really surefire way to, to make sure that you're getting your message across. You can provide great signage. And that's anywhere. That's not just in a restaurant. That's in an office building. Um, that's in, you know, an education facility, wherever it might be. I think signage is always really, really key. But I also think, again, reducing the number of choices that an individual has to make when they're deciding where something should go is really helpful. How practical is it now to in in a fast fast ish food restaurant to have everything be compostable? I mean, is that how how available are all those materials like straws and cups and uh, utensils? Yeah, they're they're available. I would say the availability isn't the issue. Um, there are some cost considerations, um, okay. but. But I will say like New York City schools, they just implemented, um, they have like a zero waste schools program and they just made the switch from styrofoam trays over to compostable trays. And they were able to make that, which is amazing because it's like, I can't remember how many trays they go through every day, but I mean, it's, (laughs) they serve, I think they're like one of the largest 
um, food production services in the U.S. or something like that. You can fact check me on that, but they serve more meals per day than like almost any organization just because of the sheer number of students that they have going through the system. And so making a switch from a styrofoam material to a compostable material is just going to have immense ramifications. And they were able to make that switch because they were such a large, large organization. They were able to get the cost down. And, and make a deal essentially with a compostable product company to, you know, to, to reduce that fee. Because I think the availability is not the issue, but the reality is that, you know, styrofoam and plastic still cost less than compostable materials. Hopefully that won't right. be the case, um, you know, moving forward. Hopefully there's, you know, affirmative action on that. But um, at, at, as of right now, I think it is a cost issue. There's another um, restaurant chain that is not in the Northeast, but it is a West Coast um, taco chain called Taco Time. And they had to adhere to a uh, Washington state regulation that required them to eliminate their single-use plasticware. And so they had so many contamination issues that they did decide to switch over to 100% compostable everything, compostable straws, um, you know, compostable little condiment containers that you can fill up, just compostable everything. So the consumer goes in, they go to taco time, they order their materials, then they go to bust their trays and it just all goes in one bin. They don't even have to think about it. And uh. I think that that really is a, is a fantastic choice. And I think we're going to start to see more of that having to happen because we just continue to see more plastic bans, more single use plastic bans, more requirements from cities that are um, dictating how much waste uh, commercial facilities are able to throw away. And so I think more and more these, um, these uh, you know, choice-based certification programs like True, um, it's a great opportunity for organizations to look at what their practices already are while they still have the opportunity to, to do it voluntarily because eventually these requirements are going to be you know, citywide, statewide, nationwide, whatever it is, there's not going to be as much tolerance for waste in the system. So it's kind of a good idea to get on board now while you still can learn about it before there's like fines and fees involved. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on, yeah, I, that, that sounds like a pretty cool system where everything is compostable. I've, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a restaurant like that. Taco time. If you're ever in the Pacific yeah. Northwest, check it out. All right. <laughs> I will do. <laughs> Sounds good. But you you mentioned this earlier um, with recycling and contamination, and that that's. I, I mean, how how big a deal is that? Like you you mentioned that our recycling chain has been disrupted quite a bit recently, which I've heard bits and pieces about. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't recycle as much; it's more expensive to recycle. I mean, it's kind of just a wide open topic. I, yeah. I wonder, are there some some key points that you can make on that, or some key advice for for anybody in, in their own work, in their office, in their whatever? Oh, sure. I can take a crack at that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's such a big topic and I love talking about it. I really do. Um, I think to me, one of the biggest issues that I see is wish cycling. Are you familiar with the term wish cycling? (laughs) No, but I can imagine what it might mean. You can imagine what it might mean, right? It's somebody looking at a product in their hand and saying, this should be recyclable. 
this can totally go in the recycling. I'm sure they'll be able to figure out what to do with this and putting in the recycling bin when it really shouldn't be there. And the reality is that that choice is usually made by very well-meaning people that want the world to be a better place (laughs) and want to believe that they're doing something good in the world. But the reality is that that habit is actually probably one of the most destructive things you can do within our recycling infrastructure because the main reason our recycling infrastructure isn't working is because there's so much contamination. That is really one of the primary issues with recycling in today's age. That's the whole reason why the National Sword recycling ban um, with China was enacted. It was because the stuff that they were getting from the U.S. was terrible. All the material was incredibly contaminated for a variety of reasons. I'm not going to say that that was only a wish cycling issue. There's, There's a lot of reasons why that material was contaminated, but that is a really big problem. People putting um, uh, like plastic bags in the recycling that actually yeah. clogs the recycling equipment, um, you know, and it just makes more work for the people that are at those recycling facilities doing the picking. Because I don't think what people necessarily also realize is that if you go and tour a recycling facility, a MRF, um, a material recovery facility, all the material that's collected from a municipality goes to you know, gets diverted to like various locations, um, but comes together to one central facility where they have sorting equipment and there's actual people on those sorting sorting lines. Some of it is automated, but those people have to sort through materials and pick out what actually is recyclable from the mass of material that shows up on those lines of which, yeah. you know, not all of that material is recyclable. So I think if there's one Uh, personal choice that people can take away from this podcast is that really just try and pay more attention to what is actually recyclable in the area where you're located and follow those regulations. And if you think that it can't be recycled, it probably can't and should probably just go in the landfill. It's actually better in the landfill than it is incorrectly in the recycling. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And it's a sad lesson because I really don't like putting things in my landfill trash bin. It makes me really sad, but I know that it's the right place for it when it's when it's something that I'm like, I kind of think that this is actually just something I want to recycle, but it can't be recycled. It needs to go in the trash bin. And that's okay. Mm. You're doing a good thing sometimes by putting it in the trash bin. And you mentioned, tr- I mean, a big challenge I think is... Uh, clear instruction yes. even coming from the hauler or the municipality oh, or yes. whoever i mean yes. i mean the, the whole chain you know right on down i mean our office is tries to be very conscientious sure. about this stuff but and we look at the material that we get from the city we get from the hauler and we end up scratching our heads about a lot of things right. still right so is that does true get into into that level of kind of the whole waste chain kind of clarification or education? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I think what we, what true the program really tries to do is really, um, focus on those upstream choices, which are going to have sometimes less to do with what an individual hauler is going to require. But I think a big piece of the equation, um, in for both upstream and downstream is clear communication, education, training, signage, all of it. Um, a, 
a great recycling program is never going to be effective if you don't have the participants on board and understanding what they're supposed to do. Um, we for True have an entire um, an entire uh, credit category section related to training, um, and it's a very important part of the um, of our program of our rating system. Um, and so, points related to signage, points related to educating employees, points relating to creating certain goals in terms of um, recycling diversion numbers being tied to overall like key performance indicators, things that you can do to really get people to care about what they're recycling and, and making sure that they're doing it correctly is going to be really important. On the hauler side, um, unfortunately, I think it just varies so much region to region and district to district to district. So it really is kind of up to an individual organization making sure that they have proper signage and um, you know bin allocation for what they know that they're able to. Um, to divert in their specific location. And, and, you know, like New York City is confusing because um, if you're a New Yorker, if you live in New York, then you're used to one set of recycling rules for your residential location, but you have an entirely other set of rules for your commercial facility because the Department of Sanitation handles all of the residential recycling and trash, and then commercial haulers um, deal with all of you know the more like business-oriented, and they're two entirely different set of guidelines, and so that makes it very confusing. And then similarly, if you work in New York versus living elsewhere, then you're going to have a set of guidelines where you live, um, and then you're going to have a different set of guidelines when you come into New York for your job. So I think things like that, um, they just it's confusing. You know, it's just it's really confusing. Yep. So you really need to. Unfortunately, it's it's kind of up to the individual or the organization um, to really just know what their individual hauler, what their individual location is going to accept versus not accept, and then just have um, great signage and materials for that. I will say the Department of Education, or I'm sorry, the Department of Sanitation has great educational materials on what is residentially acceptable to recycle, compost, et cetera, um, that, you know, you can get all of that material on the Department of Sanitation website. I just think not that many people know about it. That's the other thing. It's just like not that many people are spending their spare time trolling the Department of Sanitation website looking for great educational resources. But if you do, they're on there. So Is, the, is that New York? New York, Specifically? Yeah. Or that you? is specific okay. to New York. And I think a lot of municipalities actually have that material on their website. Um, and I do think they really do try and communicate that to the public. I mean, I, I working in the industry, um, I go to a lot of, you know, speaking events and industry specific um, webinars and things like that. And you hear people um, talking about the work that they're trying to do within their municipality, be it San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, um, and the lengths that they go to to try and educate the public. And I really think that, that there is a lot of effort to be made in that education and outreach. It's just... It's just such a huge task. So, you know, the more that I think people take individual responsibility and accountability for being part of that process, the better. Yeah, and it goes back to the reduce and reuse pieces also. Yes, yes, exactly. It goes back to that as well. And, and that's kind of an interesting point because I think for so long we've had this idea that like, oh, if you recycle, you're doing your part. If you recycle, then it's okay that I used, you know, four single-use water bottles today because yeah. I'm going to throw them all in the recycling. Um, and don't right. get me wrong. It's great that you're throwing that in the recycling. Like a water bottle should go in the recycling. That's where it belongs. Um, 
but you know, I think it's also important to remember that the recycling system um, in some ways is flawed and that there are a lot of material and energy inputs required in the recycling process that it's not necessarily, it doesn't like, it's not an even trade, right? It's not like, oh, use for single-use plastic water bottles, put them in the recycling, and there's been zero energy consumption. It's like it still takes a lot of work for those recycled plastic bottles to be made into something else and be recycled. But um, it's still better, of course, than the alternative of throwing them away. Yeah. Yeah. So in five years, Celeste, what do you think we'll be talking about when we talk about zero waste or, or waste in general? Ooh, great question. Um, well, I hope that zero waste has become more the norm. I hope it is seen less as a outrageous, inaccessible um, goal. I, I hope that it has become more the industry standard in the same way that I think LEED has become a little bit more the industry standard in certain sense, um, at least for certain municipalities and certain types of buildings. Um, you know, we have funding tied to LEED certification. We have requirements tied to LEED certification um, for certain, you know, types of facilities in different districts. And I think those types of things are fantastic and really moving the needle. And I think the USGBC in general has done a really good job over the last um, couple of decades of really helping to push that needle in the environmental realm. And so I do really see um, the waste industry as being kind of like the next horizon of sustainability. And I really hope to see a lot more of that push done in that realm, be it um, municipalities adopting TRUE as more a standard that they require for um, buildings, commercial operations, manufacturing facilities over certain square footage, um, that there's a requirement to achieve or at least pursue true certification. Um, I hope we see more legislation coming out related to single-use bans, um, you know, related to plastic bags, straws, um, cutlery, whatever it might be. Um, and I hope we just continue to see kind of like overall awareness and improvement in the recycling infrastructure and people's understanding of, um, you know, how their individual actions make an impact. Just, you know, I hope the next five years continue to make the world a better place. <laughs> that's, that's my goal. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for listening. Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Winter Associates. Our mantra is improving the built environment, making buildings more efficient, more comfortable, more healthy, accessible, making more sustainable buildings, more durable, more resilient, and more affordable. We're really focused on making buildings better. Visit us at swinter.com. That's S-W-I-N-T-E-R.com. Visit swinter.com slash podcasts for all the Buildings and Beyond episodes and the show notes. Visit swinter.com slash careers to see job openings. We have several openings across our offices in Connecticut, Manhattan, Washington, D.C., and our newest office in Boston. Thanks to the production team here, Heather Breslin, Alex Mirabili, Jade Alvarez, Dylan Martello, Kelly Westby, and I'm Rob Aldrich. Thanks for listening.